Welcome to the Three Degrees of Freedom podcast, where we explore lifestyle engineering with our expert guests to bring you in alignment with your own three degrees of freedom, location, time, and financial independence. Hello, everyone. Today, we have got an absolute treat. We've got Mr. Gary Litsky on the Zoom call today for our podcast. Hey, Gary, how are you today? Good. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. If you guys don't know Gary, he is a renowned multifamily operator and the best-selling author of the very well-written book uh, that I've read twice called Best in Class, which you can see if you're on the Zoom video, you can see it right behind Gary's shoulder over there. He brings the motto or our motto of three degrees of freedom to life. He's having He's done over a quarter billion dollars in real estate transactions, and he simply exemplifies the shift of going from traditional time for money work to the truly freedom-focused approach in doing your own business and working for yourself. He's a president of Break of Day Capital, and he impacts investors positively from a perspective of transparency and having a radical fiduciary responsibility to them. His award-winning firm is one of Inc. Magazine's fastest-growing real estate companies in the U.S., and his superpower, which is multifamily asset investment or management, coupled with his entrepreneurial spirit, has led to the growth of multiple companies, independent films, co-production, nonprofit launch, and a successful real estate podcast. You got a lot going on there, Gary. That was a big intro. Well, you know, it's I've lived a, a bunch of different lives, but multifamily value add has been my main focus for many years now. Very cool. Well, let's go ahead and jump right in. As you might imagine, our main focus today, we'll be probably talking about asset management and how that you know, how to approach it from a different ways, both passive investing and active investing for people that are on both sides of the equation. But before we do that, the traditional first question that we ask all of our guests here right off the bat is, which of the three degrees of freedom, which we talk about location freedom, time freedom, and financial freedom, do you feel is the strongest in your life right now? And which one are you looking to pursue more of? I guess location freedom is the most powerful right now. So I live in Manhattan Beach, Four blocks from the beach. I play volleyball twice a week on the on walking on the beach multiple times a week. I, my investments are all in Arizona, and the brokers are always asking me, "When are you moving here? You've got you own seven properties." All, and I'm like, "I live four blocks from the beach. I'm not going anywhere." And they're like, "I got it. I got it. It's a quick <laughs> yeah. flight. It's an hour away. You know, I'm there often. My whole team is in Arizona already, so I just I don't need to live there." So I feel that's the strongest because financially I've done very, very well, but most of my, you know, my money is in my deals. So it's not like I have tons of money to, to spend and stuff anyway, but that's not my style anyway. I'd rather just keep investing. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. I appreciate you making that distinction. And I think that your time freedom as well, sounds like that's there also for you to be able to go and enjoy some of these things, enjoy the life that you've created for yourself. Cause you've been doing this for a very long time and done it very meticulously. I can tell because over a long career to be successful this long, you have to do that. So as we jump in here, I want to talk a little bit more about what asset management really is. And more importantly, from your perspective, is it an art or is it a science? What do you think? Very quick, great question. And I'll create the distinction between property management and asset management because I think a lot of people get yeah. confused. And, and property management is the on-site team, whether you have it in-house or use we use a third-party property management company. And so you know, there's a lack of ownership thinking that you know they'll punch in, punch out. 
So we try to change their mindset, but as an asset manager, we are in charge of executing on the business plan, making sure everything is, is running correctly, secret shopping, doing the checking the financials, guiding this investment from the time we take over to execution. And that's really asset management. Yeah, that, that includes all those details. One of the biggest things, by the way, and we're going to get into this, but just a preview for what's coming up is LASL, L-A-S-L. Something that's very important inside the book that is in best in class, which by the way, I recommend every one of you guys pick it up. Even if you're not an asset manager, it's important to know behind, like all of these things that need to happen in order to make an investment successful. And that's kind of where I wanted to go next. So anyway, I wanted to ask you to back up a little bit. Is this an art or a science? What do you think asset management is? Right, right. Thanks for reminding me. I think it's, it's both because it's just, you know, we're on the call each week with our with our property management company. And so we're tweaking rents. And so so that's the art kind of like how you balancing the renewals, how many unit turns you're doing, all, all that is the art. And the, and the science is all of the, the things that we've systematized over the years that keep us on track, you know, the KPIs, our standing operating procedures, all that stuff is the science. So you take the two and create it and you've got you've got a really successful asset management thesis i guess yeah i, I would agree with you and, and i think there's a trick to knowing which part is science and which part is art because it's people when it comes down to it right there's people operating inside of your apartment building and then there's the people that are running the property management company for you and then there's you and there's some people that tend to go more down the science route where I guess in the term science, I mean like spreadsheets, data, like hard numbers and everything. And then there's the trends behind it and then the soft skills that come behind it. And every property manager and every person has different tolerance levels and desires to view each. And so you just have to figure out where you are as if you're going to be an asset manager, which I hope every owner is, by the way, in some part, an asset manager is one of the roles in your head as an investor. You got to know which one to use, an art or a science. So I guess it was a trick question that I was asking you. So thanks for, you passed the test. <laughs> All, right, phew. All right. The next question that I've got is a tricky one because human beings typically have a hard time processing risk. Now, one of the most important things for asset management is making decisions and approaching risk responsibly. So I know that, you know, as a key successful long career that you've had, you need to have a good approach to manage risk. And so I wanted to ask you beyond what was stated in the book, perhaps you can give us a little bit about how you approach risk management when doing asset management. I think it's it, one of the key things is not, you know, operating in a vacuum. So I want, as, a, as an asset manager, I want the input from my property manager, from my regional manager, they're, they're the ones, the property managers on the grounds every single day. So I want her to understand her opinion matters and, and, and get that ownership thinking. I want her feedback. My regional manager, who's also managing 10 properties that are somewhat similar, I want their input as well. So it's, it's not just me making decisions. We're all working together to, to make those decisions, to solving problems. And, and as far as where risk becomes... You know, we're constantly trying to de-risk our asset, de-risk anything that we're going to do. So we're just constantly leveraging our experiences to, to make those decisions. And if we don't have that experience, 
reaching out to someone that has that expertise. You know, I don't pretend to know everything, but maybe a friend does. And if he doesn't know, he probably knows someone that I could talk to get that answer. And same thing on the property management side, you know, making sure they find someone to get those answers. And this helps us if we're, we're taking on something that we haven't taken on before or looking at implementing a plan we haven't done, just gaining as much knowledge for anything that we do, trying to look at it three, 360 degrees. What you know, what are we missing? You know, it's if it looks too good to be true, okay, what 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 could go wrong, you know? Because, you know, let's face it, and when we're asset managing, thing nothing goes perfectly and things do go wrong. So just trying to figure that out and uh, constantly monitoring it. It's not something where anything we implement and just forget about it. We're constantly monitoring. We're constantly having those weekly calls and 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 checking the data points and making sure we're pushing the needle and it's going forward. It, when it comes to risks, I wanted to get a little bit more in the granularity because again, human beings are really, it's very hard for them to process risk just because it's something that isn't taking place now and there's a possibility of it happening there in the future. So the variables are all over the place. It's the when, it's the how much is it going to cost me? And is it if it's going to materialize and you know who's it going to affect and all of those things, right? So when it comes to managing the risks together as a team, is it mostly just the experience within the group or do you guys have a formalized way of, you know, identifying some of the risks at the beginning? They're like, oh, you know, this concrete is starting to chip up. So that could be a trip hazard. Uh, maybe we don't need to work at it right now because we're going to be doing, we're going to be working on that building in the future in like another month or a year when the budget allows or when the CapEx money is ready or however you have it. Do you guys have a way to log all of that? Or is that something that's more on the operations for the property manager? No, we'll go over that. I mean, that that's really, that stuff will be in our due diligence report from the beginning. And so anything that's a, ha a potential hazard, you know, with a high cost to it, those things you just want to address from the beginning. You know, it's just silly. When you're taking investor money, you want to, you know, any, anything insurance wise, Get yourself covered, take care of that because it's just those are the things where it can it's rare something will happen, but man, if it does happen, it will cost you an arm and a leg. And those are like the non-negotiables. We just don't we won't play with anything that's low possibility but high risk. It's just not it's just not worth it. Makes complete sense. And how do you know to identify those? That's just experience and property management expertise, everything. Yeah. Having a good team, you know, obviously I can't spot, you know, everything we manage uh, seven properties right now, but yes, having a, a property management team that is um, very meticulous and also having people on my team that are very meticulous um, to look for uh, possibilities of, of, of risk. Like you, like you said, as uh, those are the ones that, you know, you, if you, if you take a punch, it's going to be a big, yeah. Couldn't agree more with that. Especially when you're dealing with people's homes, right? And people are living there every single day. Like it just, you have liability all over the place. That's why you got insurance and you're taking care of those things. It's just a no brainer. Hopefully a lot of it is taken care of by the time you take over, if you're buying something uh, and then you're getting ready to sell as well, but totally understand that. Okay. That makes sense for me. I, I wanted to move on here with setting expectations with third-party property managers. So right now, I have a lot of holdings and I'm just going ahead and, and, and sharing with you in the audience. I have a lot of many holdings in the Midwest and a lot of the properties are, you know, anywhere between 50 and 75 units in the Midwest. And so that is a size where it doesn't allow for an on-site property manager. 
uh, which is something I'm working on. I know that's something that I need to start moving myself into quickly. How would you recommend people who are still working with third-party property managers that are offsite to begin having these conversations up front about here's what I'm expecting. I'm expecting lassel. I'm expecting you know weekly calls. I'm expecting all of that. Uh, how would you approach that type of conversation and how would you select your property managers based on that discussion? Yeah, certainly you want to, any market you're in, you want to tour the properties of the property management company to see, hey, are they shining better than others? Is it clean? Are the staff engaging? Do they answer your questions specifically? And we have a hundred point checklist that we use, but we've been using the same one for quite a while now, but, and then having those conversations. So I wouldn't start engaging with a property manager as soon as you have a property on a contract. You want to spend time with them beforehand and making sure they have the same core values that you do as well. If they don't treat their staff right, if they are penny pinchers, whatever it is, uh, like that to me is going to be uh, a, a red flag. Going that extra mile for your staff is so important. Property management could be a low margin, thankless job. And to pay someone just a little bit more, will make you'll make it back tenfold over the long haul because you're going to have less turnover. They're going to go that extra mile. When when ever turnover happens, it just sets you back, you know, months. You know, so it's really difficult. And we all face turnover. They don't make a, a ton of money in the in on these properties, so you've got to find ways to incentivize them to keep them there and motivated. So that's really important. You want to, um, and so as far as expectations too, is just having that those good conversations ahead of time as well to make sure that, hey, this is what I'm expecting, or is that does that make sense to you? Is that how you, you manage your other properties? Because if they're pushing back, hey, we don't do that, or we don't provide that, then that's not a good fit as well. So you got to make sure you're on the same page as far as budget. I, I, I want to have them push back and not be like, oh yeah, we can do that. Or our rents, you know, we target 1200 and, and, and they were at 1100. Oh yeah, we can do that. Something, you know, then that's a red flag. If, if they were at 1250, I'm at 1200, then we could talk about that. Or, you know, maybe if we change our value add plan or, or and have some back and forth, but if there's no back and forth and they're just agreeing to everything too, I, that's not someone who I want to work with, you know? It seems like the common denominator here is engagement. I mean, it's communication, but also engagement. And then, you know, maybe you have to extrapolate also out, like, how are they talking to their tenants? I guess that comes down to the shopping, right? Like the shopping that you do, the surveying that you do. Um, and I guess, have you found yourself in a situation because you've got so much experience, maybe you have brought on a property manager that has less experience than you. Have you found yourself in a coaching position where you're actually not teaching them how to do their job, but like saying, hey, look, this is what we found to have the most success when setting rental rates here or, you know, for, for tenant retention, here's what we found works on other properties and then kind of like training up property managers. Have you found that uh, to, to also be happening too? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you'll get some green staff and, and certainly it's your regional manager, train them up, but you know, we're going to come to the property unannounced and we can walk through the units and, and the property and say, well, you know, you, you've got, you know, that attention to detail so important on these, on the renovations, kind of walk through the property, but, and, and making sure you give them props when they do something well, you want to encourage them. Certainly the first time there's, there's uh, room for improvement. And then if, if they're making the same mistakes the second or third time, then that's a problem. But we try to catch them doing something good. And when there's something there, we just call it a room for improvement. 
And so they, they're not feeling beat up or anything like that. This, we want long-term relationships. It's really based on encouragement, you know, versus this is wrong, yeah. you know, let's get it fixed. And then we expect it to be stay this way in the, in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's allowed to make mistakes once, right? As long as they learn from them. So I, I agree with that sentiment there too. So before I start talking to you about, you know, some of your best takeaways from the book, Best in Class, that I'm not sure if you wrote with Kyle, because I actually had Kyle on the podcast as well. And he's a great guy. But yeah. I was going to ask you, how do you think things have changed since you wrote the book? Because I, I remember that you wrote that book a couple of years ago. At least that's when I've read. And the landscape is shifting a little bit now. We're seeing a little bit more of a difficult situation or difficult financial situation for people in like the C class, right? And maybe even some of the B class properties as well. Is there anything that you're doing right now that's kind of like bleeding edge for retention, for instance, or for reducing turnover that maybe is not mentioned in the book, or maybe you have a slight nuance that's different? In general, we talk about it in the book that asset management is, is always ever changing. So there's new technology. You know, uh, this was two and a half years ago. There's you know, one thing that works, you know, today is not going to work in three months, but cutting edge, I'd love to say we were, I, I, I don't know. I don't think we're so cutting edge. The space doesn't allow it. It's very, the property management company is usually very antiquated and slow to change. So, you know, I think there's a lot of room for innovation and just sticking to the basics. Like I'm one of those guys if you stick to the basics, that's going to take you like 95% there. And so we use Google Sheets to track everything. We have our KPIs. It's the same thing that was in the book from, you know, from two and a half years ago. And that works really, really well. Now we've tweaked how some of the things that we've measured and, and how the form looks. But for the most part, we're still doing a lot of the same stuff. That's good to hear. That's good. That means that I'm going down the same path as, as world-class <laughs> World-class operators. That's a good thing. So I appreciate that. As far as your book, Best in Class, for those who don't know, I, and again, I, this is the third time I've mentioned it, but you have to go pick up that book. Even if you're not an operator, it's really important to see what operations is like and how intricate it is and how complicated it can be. And just to have respect for the science and the art that it is. I wanted to ask you, Gary, was there any uh, specific takeaways inside the book that you think people who are already in the space that really need to double down on that's super important right now or anything, if they had to take away two or three things from the book, that's super important, which ones would you dial in on? Well, I think, you know, I, I, I forget what chapter, but how you manage your property, man, managing the, managing the manager, basically, you still have to secret shop it on a consistent basis. That's so important going, like I said before, doing the basics looking, you know, having your weekly calls, even if you, the property is operating well, you've had it for a year, you've instituted a lot of the, the, the business plan, just that consistency is so important because I hear from other operators that rarely see their property. And then they wonder why all of a sudden things have gone sideways so quickly. And even when you're managing the property, things can go sideways pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. um, occupancy can can drop, delinquency can kick up. So it's 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 having those those uh, touch points with your with your team on a consistent basis and 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 dropping in unannounced. You know, we'll 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 do that all the time. Uh, not trying to catch them doing something bad. And I, I've done I've brought investors without telling the staff. Like I just want to I I, I want to see it without them noticing and and percent of the time it's it's all good but I, I need to know if it's not and telling them I'm coming is not going to get that done so 
um, just doing, you know, that managing the manager is, I think is the critical piece. Yeah, we've actually found that to be true. And so again, I'm glad that we're aligned here. We have every property that we do. I happen to be remote. And as a matter of fact, I'm in Tucson right now. So I'm kind of in your neck of the woods, but we have every property that we do in the Midwest. I make sure that we have a general partner that has significant equity and role stake. Like their role is to be there and they have flip, you know, they do flips and they've done other apartment buildings. So they have connections there to help solve problems. And some of the things that I think we got to implement a little bit better is like having a regular like photo shoot or showing up unannounced to, you know, the leasing office and doing things like that. So that's one thing that I'm definitely gonna be taking away after we're done with this call to make sure that we're implementing a little bit better than we are right now. So I appreciate you underscoring that. And if for some reason you can't get there, hire someone on Fiverr to shoot video, take pictures, whatever it is, go through the scenario. You know, my, when we do the secret shop online and on uh, via call, uh, my operations person does it and she just creates new aliases every time, you know, so there's, there's ways to do it without having to be there, but there's, it's very powerful for you to have eyes on the property, see what's going on. Maybe a strip mall down the street, which was great when you, when you bought the property is now run down and, and that's a huge warning sign. So just staying on top of what's going on in the neighborhood too is, is huge. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Great stuff. So I want to talk also now about vertical integration. There's a couple of operators that I know that have considered vertical integration and have hopped back and forth to trying it out and then not doing it and then going back and then not doing it. I want to hear your thoughts about when you think it's appropriate and under what conditions you think vertical integration works. And for those, by the way, just to, to line it out, Gary, for the audience, vertical integration means basically saying I'm taking the property management in house. Like I'm just going to hire my own PMs. Like I'll hire them from a property management company or from the relationships that I have or from other people in different markets that are close by and just bring them in and plug them into my operations directly and then own the PM management within my syndication business. So that being said, yeah, I'd like to understand what you think about vertical integration and when it's appropriate. Well, I'm in the minority. I don't want to be vertically integrated. My last company, we had over 700 employees and 700 independent contractors, and wow. it was an HR nightmare, oh another God. low margin, thankless job. And so I can hire uh, a company like in, in Tucson, they've been doing this 35 plus years. All they do is Tucson. They have 50 properties. So when we're looking at my portfolio, which is a little more than 10% of theirs, I get the the breadth of their whole portfolio and their expertise. So I can focus on what I do best and, and what they do best. Mm-hmm. But we're at the unit count where people say, hey, now would be the time, you know, a thousand units or more. I've heard even, you know, maybe more units so that you can control more. It's not necessarily to, to save money, but you can control more, more information, whatnot. Now, I know my property management company isn't perfect. If we ran it in-house, we wouldn't be perfect either. But I know some of their weaknesses that we can cover the gaps in. And so we try to do that. And so that maybe they're a seven out of 10, you know, and we're covering those other gaps to try to get to a 10 out of 10, which is hard in any business. But, you know, that that's that's how I look at it. And so if that market that I'm in, you know, we're heavily invested in Tucson. If that, if we don't want to stay in that market long term, I can easily, because I'm nimble, I can go to another market without having to move or let go of all these people that we've spent time and money building 
and go to any market that I deem that's a, a really strong market. So like I said, I'm probably more on the minority, but I feel like that allows us to play to our strengths. Very cool. I, I think after this podcast is over, I'll tell you the names of a couple of people who also have the same approaches. You probably know them already. So you're not in the you're not in the minority, or maybe you are, but not by much. Let's put it that way. I think there's a lot of people that realize what you do as well. <clears throat> and I think it's a it makes a lot of sense to me. And and I think that's what I would like to do as well. I I personally have some VAs or some virtual assistants and they have, they're incredible people that, that work with me, but I just don't want like a W2 situation. I want to make sure that it's dollar, dollar per hour type of situation. And it works under the terms that it works while it works for everyone. So it's really important for me as well. Okay. Next question that I have for you is there is an approach. I mean, obviously investors come in different forms, but there's passive and then there's active investors. It's clear that the conversation we've been having for the past you know, 30 minutes or so has been mostly targeted towards active investors. What type of things do you want to say to passive investors about asset management? And you know, what can you tell them about the importance of it? And just want, if you had a, a megaphone, you could talk to all LPs out there at one time. What could you tell them about asset management? So I think a lot of passive investors, they, they, you know, they want to get into real estate. And so they'll do a lot of single family homes. And they, that's where they, they've been taught and they have to deal with toilets, trash, and tenants. And usually at the worst time on the weekends, when they're going away on vacation, whatever it may be. And so if you want to stay truly passive and they could focus on that time and freedom or even work harder if they want to on whatever they're doing and their expertise hire a team of experts like us, like other operators I've been doing a long time that have full-time, you know, a team of full-time people that are, that do this every single day. And I've been doing it for years to manage their, the asset. And this way it, it lowers their risk and they can reap the tax benefits and focus on other aspects of their life and not have to deal with that. And they have massive economies of scale as well. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Would you say that for people that are passive, at least the, the ones that come to me for advice, I like to tell them that, yes, technically it's passive, but you really shouldn't be too passive in it. I, you know, there, there's definitely a place for being able to kind of sit back and just watch things happen. But I truly am of the opinion that no investment is really fully 100% passive. And I wanted to get your take on that also to see if, I mean, while it is superior and there is a lot of great, like once you do your due diligence about an operator, like for instance, you have a great track record, it'd be very easy for me to be able to contribute capital into your 506C deal. The, I guess what I'm trying to do is I want to encourage people to understand that like you shouldn't be completely just passive and just sit there and not look at things. I think it is important. And I just wanted to underscore that asset management is very difficult. There's a lot of things moving on. And it is very, it's something that really separates the best operators from good operators or even poor operators. And so I, I believe that it's worthwhile for people doing passive investments to be a little bit active in making sure that they pick the right person who is actively working and doing well and has a great track record in asset management because that really ties in everything. It ties the business plan together, the underwriting, what's in the numbers, what the expectation of the numbers are and their track and everything. 
And so I, I just wanted to underscore that. I don't know if you want to add anything to it. I just had to, had to put that out there. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't track their investments. You know, they put a hundred thousand yeah. here, 75 there, and, and they don't know when they invested, you know, what was the business plan, how it's performing. And a lot of sponsors aren't, aren't sharing all the data. What was the actual for the month in, in income and expenses, NOI versus the pro forma. Sometimes, you know, their budgets change from the pro forma. And so they're not showing an accurate information with the investors and it, and, and the investors should understand what is going on. So there are no, no surprises. And if something isn't looking right, then they should take action and push back, maybe try to get with other investors in that deal because just because you trusted someone and invested uh, your hard-earned money, sometimes there's, unfortunately, there are some some bad apples out there that make us all look bad, but you, you got to stay on top of it. Yeah. I, I hate to say it, but you may actually need to do some asset management on your passive investment, you know, like actually track some of the returns that come in when they come in, you know, and, and, and put the, the letters together and kind of see some of the writing on the wall. At least that comes with, you know, as you do more and more of it, at least that's what's happened to me. And obviously when you, when you're an active investor and then you invest passively, it gives you an extra layer of awareness where you can start seeing trends happening and some of the stuff that they're saying that can help you kind of speak up and be an advocate for the rest of the passive investor group. So I think it's important to be active while passive. So let me shift a little bit here and talk a little bit more about some of the intangibles of your success, transparency, fiduciary responsibility, I think these are integral things that you have to have in order to be long-term successful in this business, right? People have to trust you. You have to trust the partners. There has to be transparency and just clear value adding in both directions. So I wanted to ask you, how did that play a part in your success and where did it start coming up in your story? Hopefully from the very beginning, but I want to hear about specific instances where that was tested or something like that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it starts with core values, you know, being in it for the long haul, it's not, I'll do well when my investors do well. So it's not a me first, it's a them first, you know, and really it's our investors and our residents. And if they're both winning, then my team and, and, and I will win as well. So we're in it for the long haul. And, you know, sometimes we're like, well, do we even need to state that in our mission statement? Because it should, everyone should have it. But I, I, we we keep it in there anyway because we feel like it's great for like to reinforce i think but yeah i mean there there are times when i've taken it on the chin you know there's a deal one of our deals that you know i'm i'm having to cover some of the some of the debt service because we are the cash flow isn't covering it but that's something where i'm like you know i've got the reserves i've always planned for reserves just in case doing really well on some on all of our other deals so th there's no reason why I can't cover this I'm just I'm not going to have a capital call mm -hmm. so it's just it's just take being able to take a punch you know and for passive investors investing with operators I can take a punch because a lot of people got in over the last few years they don't have a balance sheet or liquidity and so when things go bad they run they bury their head in the sand I mean I've been doing this not just multifamily but other businesses and you know during the 2008 downturn and other obstacles I've had to overcome. And, you know, that's, that's just a fact of life. Nothing, there's no direct to the top winning all the time. I mean, everyone will, will take a punch and, you know, it's getting up and solving problems and pushing through. I want to underscore that. I think that's a great answer about 
stepping up to the plate and helping to cover some stuff when things are going bad. It shows that you have faith in the deal and that you trust your investors. Some of the other things includes the full transparency, right? Like just being honest about where you are in the situation, because to your point about some people just burying their head in the sand or literally running away, like they're after the call, I'll tell you there's a couple of investments that there are people that have left the country you know, to try to escape like what's been happening, leaving an empty bag for people that weren't in the asset management role and things like that. I think that it shows a lot of integrity to be there to say, this is what I stand for because it is what you do, Gary. And if you have a reputation, it's very quick. Like it's incredible how quickly it can be tarnished in this industry, right? Like if you make the wrong move or if you do something out of integrity, it's going to make your, it's going to very, it's going to cut off your career very quickly. And someone that's been doing it a very long time, this is just a advice to the investors out there or to people who are looking for investments, try to find someone that has a long track record, the heart of a teacher, someone who can listen, that you can trust, that's transparent, communicates well, and has a lot of experience and a high balance or knows people with high balance net worth in their partnerships. And I think, Gary, you've you've earned that because you've been doing this for such a long time. So I just wanted to underscore that one more time. Takes time to do all of it. Absolutely. Last couple of questions I have here that are a little bit less traditional and not on the asset management side. I figured we'd break away from that. I think we covered it pretty well. I wanted to ask you, what tips do you have for those who want to shift away from their traditional nine to five to start getting into more investment-based income or more entrepreneurship from a general standpoint? You do your research. I think a lot of people fall into like, they don't set a time, a date. And there is an app for it because a friend of mine showed me an app when this was like a couple of years ago, he was looking to segue out of his W-2 into investing full-time. And so he picked a date and every time it was like a countdown, you know, it was wow. like, yeah, it was pretty cool. And so he, I got, he got other friends to, to use it too, but and having a plan, I think the hardest thing is even when I sold my, my, my previous business, like I, I didn't know where I was headed exactly. I knew real estate, where exactly in real estate, I didn't know. And, and real estate, there's so many like, so many ways to make money. And so for me, it's just finding what I want to do and then being really hyper-focused. There's, you know, I'm not going to do five different things. I want to be an expert in one specific area. And what, and once someone takes that leap, then it, it starts really picking up speed. But it, until you take that leap, it's hard to build momentum because like mentally, physically, your friends, like all, all this momentum that you build by talking about it, by putting it out in the universe, you, you've got to at some point just make the leap and go for it. And there's no reason why you can't pivot. Each experience makes you stronger and able to deal with other things in the future. So, you know, don't be afraid to go for it is what I would say. And Talk, be part of other groups that if you want to get into self-storage, be a part of a self-storage group, be around like-minded people so that you could share wins and losses and experiences because that will rocket fuel that experience for you. I think it all starts with mindset because if your mindset is there, right, then as you talked about, you just got to pick a point and go for it. And it's a slow build because if your mindset's there, you can, I mean, there's no limit to what you can do, even within like a short time frame. I'm talking like one to two years. It's incredible what you could do if the mindset's there and the engine is behind it. And I think that all of the things that you said, 100% accurate. 
and definitely recommend people follow that path. Cause I actually followed the same thing. I just, I was like, you know, I've got to, I got to try to get myself going from, for this point and something else that helped me to, to your point on the people around you, it was my wife. My wife was the one who was my strongest advocate and the one who helped me get away from my full-time position and encouraged me to take the leap. And without that, you know, she reminded me, she said, you know what, every time you do something that you're scared of, you always land on your feet. So how can this be any different? And dang it, you know, she was right again. So listen to those right people. So thank you for, for the advice. It's good stuff there. I want to talk about break of day capital. Can you talk a little bit about the success behind it? You know, where it came from, what the vision is behind the company and just give us a little bit more information about that. Yeah, uh, it's funny. A lot of people ask me about how the impetus of the name because it's pretty unique. And it was, yeah. I was selling a business and this was like a new beginning. I'm kind of like a wake up early and attack the day. Every day is a new opportunity. So that that was kind of like the genesis of it. But, you know, started small i had one partner at at uh, at the time and we hired an assistant then we split the assistant stayed with me and then and the team has grown now we have six full-time people and cool. it's just steady growth this is our first deal we're doing in a year last year we did 132 million in four deals so at the end of the day it's quality over quantity i don't need to do a billion dollars in a year and when we talk about goals yeah, eventually we'd like to get to a billion dollars assets on our mind, but it's not, that's not our driving force. We can do very well with just doing what we're doing now, but it's doing things constantly learning and improving. Kaizen is one of our core values, that constant improvement, because I, we can learn something every day from someone that's been doing it 20 years longer than me or someone that's just started out. So that's our mindset. And each time we bring on a new employee, for us, it's like a, an opportunity to have fresh eyes on how we're doing things and say, Hey, just because we're doing it, whoops, sorry, just because we're doing it one way doesn't mean we can't do it another going forward because there's always better ways to do something. Yeah. Yeah. Completely agreed. Amazing. I appreciate that. Thank you for sharing that. And we look forward to hearing more about that. And if you don't mind, we have five questions, five quick questions that we ask every one of our guests and they're meant to be answered in 30 seconds or less. So if you're ready, we'll just rapidly get them to you. Are you ready to go? Let's go for it. All right. Number one, name any resource, including book, podcast, or anything else that was or is essential in your journey to pursuing your own freedom. Yeah, I would, I'm going to be a little generic here, but it was just joining a, a real estate group and there's lots of different groups out there. So join one of those groups because that was the biggest rocket fuel. I didn't even, I didn't even learn much except from like teaming up with other people, but that was huge. Amazing. Yeah. Very good. It's all about the network. Number two, if you woke up and your business was gone and you had only $500, a laptop, a place to live and some food, what would you do first to start rebuilding? Reach out to my network. Certainly I've got some skill sets and one of them has been my network. So letting everyone know, Hey, I'm looking for work. Does anyone know anything? That is huge because it just, you know, just having that in the back of their mind and, and having that conversation with someone else that can help get me going. Yeah. Love it. Great. Network is always a good answer. <laughs> I love it. Number three, what does your self-reflection and goal setting practice look like if you have one? Yeah, certainly. I, I want to understand what I did right, what I did wrong, you know, because even though we've been very successful, there's plenty of times where we, we've taken it on the chin, you know, that's part of investing in real estate. That's part of asset management. And so 
trying to look at, okay, what could I have done better and taking responsibility, even, you know, and, and it might take me a little bit to get there, to take that responsibility. But at the end of the day, you know, I've got to look at what I could have done better. Very well said. Number four, what are the core work habits that you attribute mostly to your success that's inherent in your personality? Persistence, continuous learning. And I guess those, those two, persistence and never stop learning. I think they are one in the same. So it's all about that. I love it though. That's good stuff. Number five, what tool or process has become one of your most important time, money, or energy saving ninja magic tricks that you use every day? It's a very easy one, my calendar, just putting things in my calendar. And, and so whether it's planning to go on vacation or planning to have a meeting or planning to get this done, having everything on my calendar means it, it's there in front of me to get it done. So that, that that's everything for me. I love it. There's a, there was a saying that uh, said that if it's not in your calendar, it's not serious. You're not serious about it. You need a coach. You need, you need it in your calendar, right? For anything that you seriously want to start pursuing. So I think that's amazing. You use Google calendar, right? Or outlook. I was using outlook for a while that kind of crashed on me. We've been, I've been using the Google calendar now. Yeah. E either one is great tools. You that's know? great. That's great. Awesome. Well, Gary, I really had an awesome time having you on and I know that your time is valuable here and precious. So I just want to thank you for coming on the show. But before you go, why don't you tell a little bit about where people can find you and what you have going on? I'm just going to give you an open mic right now to talk to all of the audience out there. Absolutely. You can head to our website, breakofdaycapital.com. We have a live deal right now, a 506C deal. We have a fund that we're raising for we have a lot of passive investor resources there. You can also find our social media links. We're on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, uh, Cast Real Estate Investor Podcast. So those are the best ways to, to reach out and connect with us. Yeah. Also, don't forget to pick up the book, Best in Class. Please do that. It's everywhere. It's on Amazon. I think you can even pick it up in bookstores, right, Gary? I think you can yeah. get hardcover. I haven't gone to a bookstore in forever, so I don't, <laughs> I don't know, but I, what, definitely Amazon. Tell you about the state of the industry, right? That's crazy. Right. Anyway, listeners, I want to thank you guys for listening all the way to the end. Thank you guys so much. Please, wherever you're listening or watching this, please give us a thumbs up, a like, comment, subscribe. Do anything that you can to interact with us because... If you do that, we'll be able to appease the algorithm gods and get more and more people to listen, just like you, to the podcast. And in turn, we'll also be able to bring on incredible people, more incredible people like Gary, to share their wisdom with you to continue adding value. So once again, Gary, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Dirk. All right. Have a great one, guys. We'll see you next week. 